Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. We're recording this show on October 10th, 2017. While we focus on economics in this show, there are some pretty important political considerations to factor into your economic decisions at the moment. Uh, we'll discuss a range of topics today, but we'll conclude with a recommendation on the stock market, gold, and oil, as well as the best way to prepare and keep your investment dollars as safe as possible in the short and medium term. Ronaldo, why don't you take a minute to give an overview of the current situation, and then we'll go through it piece by piece. Sure, Matt. Um, hi, everyone, and it's great to be back with you again. I have a little cough today, so if you hear that sneaking out from time to time, please uh, please uh, forgive me. I'm trying to fight it off the best I can. Um, the, the brief overview of the economy is it is doing surprisingly well for how much buffeting it is receiving. And I think we're going to be talking a little bit about that later in the show. We're going to be talking about what's actually happening to keep the economy going up. Uh, how do we define up? Uh, I was just reading an article yesterday about how in the New York Times about how the global economy uh, seems to be doing very, very well. Uh, and there's a lot of excitement that we could actually broach 3% GDP growth of the global economy this year. Uh, which is possible, um, definitely is possible, uh, although it's not going to be anywhere near 3% for the Americas, for the you know, U.S. particularly. And um, <clears throat> the reason is that what's happening is we are getting the continuing momentum from the Obama years, which put a lot of things into perspective and built a solid but not glamorous base. So there was this was not a V-shaped recovery. It's been a steady climb up Mount Sustainability, if you will. Um, that climb is getting harder every day. What's keeping us up in the air now, as you've heard in prior shows, is there's a belief in Wall Street that they will get their tax deduction through this, this administration. A tax deduction of taking the corporate tax rate from 35% down to 20, for example. Uh, and if it does that, it will justify the otherwise ridiculously high multiples that stocks are commanding on the S&P 500. Now, you have to make up your own mind. And you'll hear what my decision, my, you'll, you'll hear my conclusion at the end of this show. So please stay tuned for it. You have to make up your own mind. Um, the, 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 what I see happening is a lot of instabi instability in some key underlying phenomena. Let me list them for you. I do not believe, and we'll get into the geopolitics in more detail later, but I don't believe there's a good chance that we will see tax reduction for the corporate world in this particular 2017 year. What comes next year, I can't say. But I don't think you're going to see that in 2017, which is going to put more pressure on those stocks to start coming down to 20, 30% below where they are today. <clears throat> that in turn is going to cause people to feel poorer because they'll have less, quote, savings, close quote, is determined by the value of their stocks. <clears throat> there's already a, a, there's been a very sustained long-term decline in new family formations which starting to turn around a little bit with the millennials, but still is not there. So what's happening is we don't have a booming housing industry to carry us in the event the stock market shows us that that asset stocks is dropping in value. 
So we can't really look to our home as an asset that's growing dramatically. And in fact, just for the first time in many, many months, I saw some interesting statistics that resale values are going up, but I can't see that it will continue if there isn't a strong uh, increase in wage gains. Now we are having some wage gains, which is good. Um, and they're actually outpacing inflation at the moment, which is all even better. But the savings rate, meaning how much money people are setting aside for a rainy day, is unbelievably high right now. And, and, and that's a good thing in, in all due circumstances. And normally you want people to save some of their money. You don't want to spend it all. But if that saving rates indicates that people are concerned about spending too much, since we have an economy based on consumer consumption, meaning 72 to 74% of our economy is based on consumption, then you're going to see some downward pressure on the economy, which is, I think is one of the downward eddies we're experiencing. The other downward eddy, as we've talked about in prior shows, you got 11 million scared Hispanics who are holding on to their cash for fear that something could go wrong. Uh, they could be deported. They could be hauled away and have to send their money to Mexico. So everybody I check with in the Hispanic community says they definitely are slowing down their spending, if not eliminating it wherever possible. In addition to that, and, and again, I don't know if you want to go into this in greater detail, Matt, but I'll wrap with this. We have now seen a series of tragedies. You know, whether you call that tragedy Harvey or Irma or Nate or Marie or Napa Valley, one tragedy after another is accumulating on top of each other. And it's causing a lot of destabilization in the economy. I was reading an article just the other day about how people in Texas, where a tremendous amount of the, um, the, the, the revenue from tourism comes in right in this particular season, starting in spring all the way through to late fall, um, because of Harvey, it's been severely reduced. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen to the wine culture of, of, of Napa Valley when this fire is over. But we do know that there's destabilizing economic activity. And in some cases, that activity requires the government to spend. And that shot in the arm of government spending sometimes will lift the economy. And up until a certain point, that's true. We are now probably past that point. And when you tear on top of that, the decaying nature of our infrastructure and how infrastructure spending has been put by this administration behind the tax bill, which went behind healthcare. Well, healthcare is not going through. The tax bill is not likely to get through this year. Maybe yeah, never, but certainly not going to get through this year because it's it's clearly a, a huge gift for the corporate world, and it's probably got no way to pay for itself. But if the, if the if the infrastructure spending is behind taxes, that means you're talking about mid to late next year before you're going to see anything significant. When you put all that together, and I'm totally leaving aside the political instability of the moment, the threat. Uh, as one Republican senator, Bob Corker, said that we may be tweeting our way to World War III, you know, taking all that completely out of the picture, not even looking at the, the global instability, not looking at the instability with Korea, not looking at any of the geopolitical issues associated with this White House, you still have a lot of downward pressure on this economy. And I don't see the administration taking the steps it needs to take to stimulate consumer spending. I see the likelihood that people will continue to pull in their spending and I believe that will cause downward pressure on the economy in the foreseeable future. And I think it's probably already started. Thanks for that summary, Ronaldo. And yes, there's a lot to talk about. Um, there's some things that, we're, uh, that we want to make sure we get to here. So we'll start with something that doesn't necessarily feel like it's right on target, but it's important and part of the overall picture. Um, you sent me an article from the New York Times titled, Big Business Draws Blame for Startup Slump. 
Uh, the premise of this article is that the rise of big business is somehow stifling competition from startups uh, with anecdotal evidence based on essentially buyouts of smaller tech companies like Instagram and YouTube by industry giants, Facebook and Google, uh, respectively. Do you want to respond to this this premise and, and give us your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Matt, for bringing it up, because I definitely do want to respond to it. First of all, I would love to meet and speak to Ben Castleman, the author of this article, because I would love to chat with him about what I think is really going on in business and where he's missing the boat. See, what people, uh, and I think this article is classic, what they are thinking is that somehow the economy operates in a vacuum, that it's not affected by the politics of the moment. So in the theory, in the economic theory world, the idea, well, the economy just kind of you know, chunk, chunks along and it does whatever it does and the politicians do whatever they do and the two really don't affect each other. And that's just not true. And I'm not speaking about the direct effects like when the Fed does or does not buy back bonds. I'm not talking about direct effects like when the government and fiscal policy creates a tax deduction or it doesn't create a tax deduction. I'm not talking about those really obviously specific interventions which are enormous on the marketplace. I'm talking about the entire milieu, the climate. How much confidence do people have? How safe do people feel? Well, do they believe it's going to be a better tomorrow or not? And that number is starting to turn down. And the reason is people are kind of afraid. And you can't ignore that. In other words, you can't say, gee, I don't know why the economy is not doing better. It doesn't matter that Trump's president. If anybody else is president, it'd be the same situation. It's just not true. And we're not going to go into a lot of politics on this show. But anybody who's listening to this show has a clear understanding of the degree of instability that's currently going on in the, in the government, specifically the administration, the confusion and craziness in the Congress. I mean, you've got the, the, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bob Corker, uh, basically saying the, the president needs a babysitter and he's tweeting us into World War III. And you've got the secretary of state saying the president's a moron and he ought to know. I mean, and, and doesn't recant it. I mean, these are leaking out, but you don't, it's not like that took us anybody by surprise. In fact, every commentary I heard on the subject of what the Secretary of State called the president, the moron comment, every single commentator said, this is not the kind of thing that surprised anybody in the Republican leadership. It's what they talk about in private. What's surprising is they put it out in public. Well, what I, I want to say to the political establishment in Washington, D.C. particularly, guess what? The public isn't that stupid. The public knows what it's dealing with, and it's hoping against hope that there'll be enough adults in the room and enough goodwill amongst political players that we will somehow muddle through as we always have. But so, that that type of approach does not make for a stimulating economy. That makes for, at best, maintaining status quo, and in some cases, I would argue, is a depressant. So this article which says big business is gobbling up too many startups, I don't think that's the problem. And there's plenty enough startups. The problem is you've got you've got a consumption pattern right now which is flatlining, and therefore it's harder for companies of every size, startups and old line companies, to get ahead. So they were they were specifically talking about that kind of startups being the engine of job growth and the fewer startups recently than there were in previous uh, segments or, or times. Um, well, we give some numbers there. So they said 558,000 companies, 558,000 started in 2016. Um, um, but the 414,000 currently, actually, it's reversed. It's 414,000 in 16, 558,000 in 2015. So what they're saying is a 20% reduction in business formation is a, sim, is a symptom 
of big business making it too hard for small companies to compete. I don't agree. So, but that was the that was the during the last tenure of President Obama when everyone thought Hillary Clinton was going to be the president. So I'm just wondering what the tie is there between politics and and the startup formation. Well, I think I think that the 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 last year of Obama's presidency was fraught with uh, anxiety. Yeah. I mean, if if you think about it, that's when Trump appeared on the scene, and people thought for this can't possibly happen, and then it got crazier. Uh, when was it? July of, of, of 2016 is, is when that whole thing came out about the Billy, uh, Billy, uh, what's it called? It's bus ride, Billy yeah. Bush, um, you know, where he talked about grabbing women by their genitals. I mean, we've been going through this for so long now, we've forgotten. Like, I mean, Trump has been in office for 10 months. And before that, we had this, what, and I'm again going to quote Republican Senator Bob Corker, we had a reality TV show, which the president has been creating. And that show is what we've been served up. The problem is that show is just entertainment. It isn't real. And as a result, it's distracting us from the real business of digging into our challenges as a nation. I'll give you one more statistic, one more thing. People don't like to take risks and form new companies when they believe that they're living in a polarized society. Sure. They just don't. And we, we've never had a more polarized society probably since the Civil War than we do right now. Okay. People don't like to start new companies and add capital when they think that they're living in an era of white uh, supremacy, which we are, where, where it's becoming this massive force in our body politic. Now, people don't like to do startups and formations when they aren't sure whether or not we're going to have a, um, a clash, a violent clash uh, between the white supremacists and everybody else. Uh, people don't want to do formation capital when they see that they can go to a concert and almost 600 of them can be shot from one window by a guy with an arsenal in his room that would rival the National Guard. I mean, it's like you can't you can't keep doing this. You can't keep having these incredible gun violence deaths. You can't keep having these this polarization. You can't keep having these I mean, the white separatists were marching again in Charlottesville just two days ago. You can't keep doing this and expect business formation to occur. It was happening in the last year of Obama's presidency because everybody saw he was going fading out and the question was Hillary or, or, or Trump and oh my God, <clears throat> they all got caught up in the Trump thing. It, it, it's just, you cannot separate it. Yeah. And so what's happening, is that you you must feel it, Matt. Let me, let Don't me. you feel a general malaise? Oh yeah, well, listen, I go back and forth on a day-to-day basis. Today I've been sitting in the smoke from those fires in Napa, so yes, today I do. But let me let me push on that a little bit, Renault, because I think it's an interesting hypothesis. But I also really thought this this article was pretty interesting. You know, the Citigroup analysis, I think it was back in 2010, really took a look at where we're headed as a country and called it a plutonomy. Uh, essentially, the or plutocracy, but they, they, they changed the word because that had been used before to plutonomy. I, I don't know why. Uh, essentially a, a society governed by and for the rich. Oh, is is a plutocratic economy, right? So an, an economy structured around serving the rich uh, with the understanding that the stratification in income was pushing us towards a, a very imbalanced society where most of the real demand growth and, and spending was going to be at the luxury level and the middle class and lower class would stay in essentially the same place and thus slip backwards, right? Uh, the, that's kind of my question here is, yeah, there's definitely a concern and an, and an environment that would be, especially with last year's insane and, and really mortifying election and especially the consequences, frankly, in my opinion. 
But isn't there also something to be said about his point that big business does swallow small business when there's such a big market segmentation between these giants that rule the internet versus these tiny or even successful startups that can't really compete with them, but they can get, get bought up by them. Yeah. You know, look, I am a big believer in the general theory that a plutocracy does not have as strong an economy as a broad based uh, I hate to use the word democracy, but a broad-based economic, um, uh, broad-based economic uh, opportunity, which is shared equally amongst all classes in society, and where there is upward mobility. So I, I, I don't think that what's happened and been happening for quite some time in the economy is good. So when you have a plutocracy, I think it definitely reduces economic activity overall. However. What you're tying it to is to business formation. And that's where I think the flaw in the article is. Do I think we should not have a plutocracy? Absolutely. Do I think we should close the gap between the working person and the and the top 2%? Absolutely. Do I think we need to reform our taxes, not just reduce corporate taxes, but do we need to truly reform them to get a tax code that makes sense? Absolutely. But we aren't going in any of those directions. Right. We made some progress under the last couple of years of Obama of closing the gap between the bottom, you know, 98 percent, the top two percent, and certainly made a lot of progress in the bottom 40 percent with relative to, to the top two percent. Well, you mean we but that's seeing, all going away. We started seeing wages coming up at the bottom. Yeah. But I don't know if we exactly. actually closed the gap. I don't think. No, that... no, no, no. no you, well, you did, you, it was a little bit of a closing. It was, the, the, the lines came a little closer together, but nothing significant, nothing major. And that that's also behind us at this point. So I really think that that's consistent with my theory that we're depressing the economy because we are running it for the rich. And as a result, the people who need to spend the money, the middle class, and, and the people who are living paycheck to paycheck, those people are desperately needed if we're gonna get this economy to take off and we are creating all the wrong policies and have been for several years to cause them to want to jump in the pool. Yeah. And, and that's both as spenders and it's as creator of new business. Because when you create a new business, you gotta take some risk. You go out on a limb. I think I'm actually going to go read this report that this report was based on because, you know, it's really interesting. It's a good question. I think that one thing that gets a little fuzzy here is their definition of startup. You know, they're using anecdotes specifically about tech companies that have made it to billion dollar valuations. I mean, that's not the typical business formation in the United States. That's the sexy one that is the one that everyone focuses on when you hear the word startup. But startups, like you're saying, is business formation. And that happens at the, the regional level in many different ways. And and I'd actually be interested to dig in a little deeper and keep looking at this question going forward, if that's a good idea with you. No, no, I think it's a good idea. But just but, but I, I want to come back. What is the central argument in this article is that that startups and and, he's, and, and this guy, Robert Litton, L-I-T-A-N, basically ties it to like, well, so what? Come on, where's where's the recovery? Well, the answer is the recovery is not happening because we're not creating conditions for the recovery to occur. I'm one of the optimistic people who believes that we can take this economy back to 4% growth or better per annum. I, I have no doubt we can do that. But we're not going to do it by bringing coal back and suppressing investment in new technology that's cleaner. We're not going to do it by uh, by policies that reduce corporate tax burdens, by by eliminating, by charging many women an extra $1,000 a year for their birth control pills, okay, which depresses spending but puts money in the pockets of the of the pharmacy, the pharmaceutical companies aren't going to lose because the women are still going to buy those pills, but those women aren't going to have it to spend on something else. 
And, and, and you've got this whole debate that's happened around healthcare, where it, it's completely destabilized the conversation. And instead of getting better, the healthcare situation in this country is causing more concern, more fear. Oh my gosh, what if I had a pre-existing condition? Oh my gosh, what if I had a catastrophic illness? Oh my gosh, can I afford the rising premiums? Why won't they fix it? So these, this, this Inuit, this malaise is what I'm talking about. And if you think the economy can grow in the face of that kind of malaise, you need to wake up and smell the coffee because it can't. That's my thesis. I like it. Let's dig into it and keep uh, keep talking about it. It's a very interesting question. Um, so I want to keep moving because there's want to get to the, the heart of the matter here. But there's another issue that you flagged, which was the Federal Reserve and the action they're taking to unwind some of their unprecedented measures that they took during and after the Great Recession. Uh, do you want to take us through this? Yeah, real quickly. So what the Fed has announced is they're going to start doing, I think it's a $10 billion a month reduction in the trillions of dollars of money they created out of thin air in, as a way to monetarily support the growth of the economy after the recession. Now, what the Fed did was absolutely prudent and it worked out great. And, and just, just to make sure everybody understands what happened here, when the Fed creates money what it does is it issues debt basically that it buys and it creates a an inflated balance sheet that's what it does and so by the fed controlling the amount of that debt on its balance sheet the flow of that debt back onto its balance sheet as it creates it creates a liquidity in the economy that permits the economy to grow if other things aren't going well so in this case fiscal stimulus which wasn't going well so it was a good thing to do at the time. We got, I, I think, if my memory serves me correct, we got up to about $4 trillion in, in these, um, this amount of newly created money, so to speak. And now what they're going to do is they're saying they're going to take $10 billion a month off. Well, first of all, if you do the math, $10 billion a month and you're chipping away at $4 trillion, they're not going to get there for many, 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 many years. But what I want to point out to people is that money didn't exist in the first place. Nothing real got made. Nothing real got sold. It was completely a financial manipulation. And, re and removing it is strictly a financial It has nothing to do with anything. It doesn't have anything to do with whether money's going to be available to lend to businesses or not. So when people see things like this, particularly if there's a reporter, in this case, I saw an article that said, and I'm quoting, the Fed, quote, would begin withdrawing some of the trillions of dollars it invested in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. No, actually it didn't invest a nickel. What it did is it created a, a balance sheet entry on its own balance sheet. And what it's gonna do is reverse that down. So it's not like they're selling assets. And that's why I think it's very important to comment on this point. When, when writers write this stuff casually, and I'm sure they're, you know, they're running fast, they're trying to get to a deadline and they probably understand it better than they seem like they understand it. But at the end of the day, what they're really doing is they're creating a certain kind of problem for us. And the problem that they're creating for us is that they are, giving us the misimpression that A, there's something out there that was invested in, and B, that there's something out there that, that will be sold to retrieve that investment. What people need to understand is this is all just a financial calculation going back and forth in the Fed's books. And by the way, the Fed could go faster than $10 billion if it wanted to. It wouldn't have any effect at all. So let's dig into that a little bit because it's pretty confusing. <laughs> and we're going to get into the uh, kind of monetary uh, Paul, or the, the the theory of money uh, questions that I know you really like, Ronaldo. But I want to I want to get into it a little bit more here. So you're saying that the Fed created entries on its books and thus uh, somehow saved the or or did something to change the actual real economy by creating entries on its books. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Okay. So there's two. We talk about this a lot in the show. We talk about monetary policy and fiscal policy. 
So fiscal policy is like the government doing something, a tax deduction, a tax credit, investing money to build a bridge, all those things, you know, the budget every year, that's all fiscal, F-I-S-C-A-L. We got locked up under the Obama years where after that first um, 750 that was uh, spent for the uh, coming out of the Bush 2008 recession, the stimulus, that first, yeah. the first stimulus bill that got through barely squeaked by and wasn't enough. People like Paul Krugman and myself and others said, that's not going to give you a robust recovery. That's just not enough money. It should have been twice that size. But once the once the, the, the fire was you know dying down, then the Republicans went into like no more. You know, they were like deficit hawks. We don't want to create a deficit. Although it's interesting that today all the Republicans are crying for more deficit so they can have guns and butter. But I'm not going to go there right now. The point is that fiscal approach, do something with your cash. Like what Krugman and I argued, for example, when you have low interest rates, that's when the government should borrow real money from real consumers, pay interest when it's low interest, build the bridge or the highway or the infrastructure that then will serve the nation for decades longer and pay back the money because it was borrowed at a fixed low rate of interest. So you, you borrow to do infrastructure when the interest rates are low and you tend to want to pay it back when interest rates are high. Okay. Well, instead of getting any fiscal opportunity because of the, the, the log jam in Washington, the Fed wisely said, well, we control monetary policy. We can't control fiscal policy. So what can we do to flood the market with more money than it can possibly use? And the way you can define more money than it can possibly use is what's called negative interest rates. Remember hearing about that? Yeah. Okay. So what they did is they, they created so much money through thin air on their balance sheet that in order to get people to buy the debt they were issuing, they were issuing it at below the rate of inflation. And, and, and the way you do that, if you're the Fed, is you tell the banks, here you go, banks, you can pay me one and a half percent for my bond, for, for, for the debt I'm creating. I'm the Fed. But you can charge five, six and seven percent to the public when you lend that same money up. Because when they inflate their balance sheet, it gives them the ability to inflate bank balance sheets. You follow me? Mm -hmm. And that also kept the bank stronger while they were sorting themselves up. So we were in the position where the banks were literally paying less for the money than the rate of inflation, and they were lending it out at two to three times that, which created huge profits for the banks, right. all in, all monetary policy. None of that was done by a law passing. Now, <clears throat> what, what, the, what the Fed did is by creating that money, and now it's discreating it, it's, it's taking money, by discreating they're taking money out of circulation. What does that mean? Well, when they buy back $10 billion worth of bonds that they issued against debt that didn't exist in the first place. Remember, they didn't buy anything or sell anything. They just created money out of thin air. When they did that, as they take that $10 billion back, that's $10 billion less of, quote, liquidity, close quote, in the system. Which means that's $10 billion less collectively for the banks to borrow below the rate of inflation and lend out at two to three times the rate of inflation. So that over time will start to reduce bank profits. However, when you're talking about four trillion of excess liquidity and you're only reducing it by 10 billion a month, it's going to take years and years for that to be felt. And they're betting that the banks will do well enough on the continuing recovery, which even though it's not robust, has been continuous since 2009. They're going to bet on that and say, OK, well, the banks will do just fine. <clears throat> they don't need our artificial support and we can keep sucking 10 billion or more a month out. The reason they're not doing more is they don't want to create a heartburn at the banks. 
They don't want Wall Street to think they're being too aggressive. <clears throat> but everybody agrees they got to do it. So they're doing it. Right. Well, I don't want to be too um, heavy-handed with my comments here, but that technique of essentially giving <laughs> extremely cheap capital to the banks in order to lend at a higher interest rate is just so clearly a bad tool, in my opinion. Um, you know, it, it shows the power of the private banks that control the, the system of banking. And it really should have, it shouldn't have all been a, 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 stimulate, a, stimulative, uh, a stimulative force for bank balance sheets. I, I think that that's, an, that's one, of the, one of the saddest and most obvious cases of plutocracy that we'll ever see, hopefully, well, in our lifetime. Yeah, yeah, I'd rephrase it this way, because I don't like it either, but it, it was the best of, of all the bad options. And remember, the political system was totally locked up, still is. So all the things that you should have done, we couldn't do. Well, and I would say that, no, I'll just say this. I think that had the Fed not acted, you would have seen a depression. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think it was the, the it was a, it was an option that they could really scale quickly, right? I just think that there is not the same kind of focus on getting cash out the door to people who will then leverage it as there no. could be if they focused on student loans, for example. No, and this is the corruption of our government. Right. This is like, you know, Trump ran on, on drain the swamp, and what he's been doing is feeding the alligators. This question actually came up in the presidential election because Jill Stein, who I was not a big fan of for other reasons, brought up the idea of the Fed actually essentially doing the same thing for student loans. That's an interesting and creative approach. I don't know if that's possible, but... You know, th these kinds of things that just are considered, you know, we got to get this money out the door. Who can do it for us? Okay, J.P. Morgan, Chase, then let's do it. That, 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 I, I hope that we're figuring out some policy tools that could actually serve us in the next crisis. Well, but, but, but we, we, we have figured them out. We knew them in the last crisis. I mean, if you look at everything that Krugman and I and Stiglitz have been writing for the last, since 2008, 2007, actually, you're going to see that we're very consistent. And, and in fact, everything we told them to do, they haven't done, they should have done. And that's pretty clear in hindsight. Now, the problem, though, is our political system so broken. I hate to keep coming back to it, but that's the problem. Yeah. In other words, it, I don't think the Fed wanted to do what it did. I think the Fed felt forced to do what it did. And, and as far as it being plut plutocratic, of course it's plutocratic. But here's a better one for you. Why is it that on the fiscal policy side, not one bank has had anybody go to jail? <laughs> Why is it that no one's been prosecuted for what they did? Why is it that the banks got off scot-free? And in fact, the big too big to fail is bigger than ever because they've now consolidated some more. That's a whole if you wonder the worms, yeah. <laughs> yes, and, and I'll tell you, the principal losers in the last round of, of bank regulation has been it's hit in unduly hard on local community banks and, and it's been helpful to the big banks. Right. So that's plutocratic. When you're squeezing the community banks out of business, and you're feeding the big guys, and there's fewer and fewer of them every day, and then you catch them red-handed doing all kinds of heinous conduct, like Wells Fargo, and still nobody goes to jail, yeah. and still nobody gets punished. I mean, you gotta go, okay, that's not a monetary problem, that's a political problem. And if you know there's this old saying by H.L. Mencken, who was a crusty curmudgeon, but a very bright guy, and he observed, in a democracy, the people inevitably get better than they deserve. Meaning, what they're getting in a democracy is better than what they deserve because what they deserve is worse because they don't vote to get the better. 
they get lucky if, 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 because they don't take the effort. I mean, what's the rate of participation in our elections in this country? It's dismal. It's like, what, 52% or something like that? You know, why is it that people <clears throat> don't choose to read up and study the issues so they can cast an informed vote? Why is it they prefer to watch entertainment on television, which is mind-numbing, rather than get information about the, that could help them understand the world they live in and what they could do about it? Why is it that few people, you know, like it's in the handful of thousands that listen to this radio show, but there's millions and millions of people that will watch and listen to trash for hours on end? Why? Okay, well, at some level, you got to say, you know what? The people have to rise up and take action. And, and I want to put a plug in here for Indivisible. What Indivisible did is it, it catalyzed people into action. And, and, it, and they brought it home that if we don't fix it, it won't get fixed. And that's where we are. We're at a crisis in our democracy right now, which everybody knows. And what we have to hope is that in this crisis, people will rise to the occasion and say, you know what? I like being able to vote. I like being able to, de to determine my own future. I want this to be less plutocratic, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, Ronaldo, you know, my, my take on this is that I don't think we can honestly blame low information for, for the reasons people don't vote. I think it's a lack of inspiration. I think it's a serious problem with the, and the reason you see the, the, the Trump phenomenon, Trump wave and the, and the clamoring for the Bernie wave that almost happened. It, it, there's something really deeper going on, which is that the, the institutions have failed so many people. There's so much anger, uh, and there isn't a coherent message that really resonates authentically, um, besides the one that Trump offered to a certain segment of of what what people call his base. Now, I, I think there's a huge opportunity here. And that's the piece that we have to keep focusing on is the Overton window, you know, the acceptable concepts that are allowed to be discussed in political discourse has just widened drastically. I mean, we're, t we're looking at real talk of a, of a public health care system that everyone said would never happen, an alternative to private insurance. Th this, is, this is how far the Overton window has moved. I mean, that and then on the other side, we're talking about building a wall and pulling out of trade agreements and all these other kind of fringy used to be fringe concepts. So yes, people and, and, and people don't vote with their classical rational analysis and they vote with their marketing mind, the mind that marketers understand, which is their emotional brain, their, their, you know, the, the, the neurons that exist outside of their kind of front lobe, more in the back of the brainstem, right? Uh, let's, let's get the, people who stand for the values that you and I care about, you know, progressivism, essentially, to actually understand how to communicate their ideas and their morality, because it exists. It's just that they don't name it. Uh, well, I, I, I look, I tell you, I, I, I agree with where you'd like to go. I just um, call me old fashioned. I believe the responsibility ends with me. And you can say that people need to be motivated and they need more charisma. Great. All good. But at the end of the day, it's my responsibility collectively with everyone else to create the future I want to live, not the future that I fear. And what I see, and I don't want to give anybody an easy pass here. I think that, you know, you're a bright young guy. You figure it out. You, you, you read a lot. You put it together. And um, even if you and I don't agree on everything, I, I respect the fact you're doing your homework to come up with your opinion. And I know you'll vote. And you know that about me. I don't know that about the vast majority of our countrymen. And I think that that's what's we forgot that if you don't if you don't vote, if you don't actively participate as a citizen 
in a political system like we have, you get chaos and eventually you get economic chaos as well. So there's a lot of momentum pushing us forward <clears throat> over the, the climate we've been doing for the last, well, since 09. But, it, you know, for the last eight years, we've been climbing out. But that momentum of the train coming down the track is not continuing to be pushed by good fiscal policies. And the Fed really doesn't have much more it can do in monetary. You can't go back to that well because it's already been done. Which, by the way, that's where they're buying it back because they want to get that well back again. They want to have that option if something really goes wrong. So, so – yeah, you know, I just think I think you got to you got to hold people responsible. So you know, rise to the occasion, folks. Do you really like what you're seeing? Okay, if not, you better show up in the midterm elections and vote in people who you think will give you a better chance of prospering and your children surviving and prospering as well, or your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, or whatever. Yeah. So I I'm not I'm, I don't want to dwell on it, and I agree with with the the concept of people <laughs> taking voting seriously. Absolutely. Uh, I think that the the questions about have we underserved the people who are making these what we would call irrational decisions in some way? Has our society failed them? Has culture failed them? I think that these are beyond personal responsibility and more of a, a, a social responsibility. But again, more on that, I'm sure, to come as we go towards the next election cycle. Uh, I think I think that while we're talking about macroeconomics, though, Ronaldo, it's really important uh, to talk about the climate chaos situation, right? You've mentioned it already in the show, but you know, one one hypothesis and and a, a thing that you've been talking and thinking about a lot is that some amount of crisis and some amount of as a result crisis spending uh, can be stimulative, just like uh, the stimulus package that you were discussing. But too much of that really gets us into into trouble. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, a little bit of crisis, in effect, forces the government to disgorge. So it's a fiscal decision, right? You see uh, Puerto Rico asking for another $4.2 billion today. That, that, that's a fiscal response they're asking for. And, and, and if they weren't in that crisis, they wouldn't be asking the government to send them that $4.2 billion, and Lord knows where it would end up otherwise. So a little bit of crisis can cause stimulation unintentionally through fiscal policies that adapt to the crisis themselves. The problem is when you get into crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis, the, the cumulative effect of all those reduces your ability to spend resources without creating substantial inflation. And this, this gets us into the classic guns versus butter argument. So <clears throat> this particular administration, this Congress, has indicated that it wants to spend even more on military which is already in a massive amount of our budget and which is a very, well, it's the least productive way you can spend money if you want to grow the economy. So, because you get the smaller multiplier effect. So if you want to put all the money into guns that this Congress appears to want to put into guns and you are forced to spend more on butter than you want to, you create even bigger deficits more, fat, more quickly. And those bigger deficits more, more quickly eventually begin to imperil you when your gross domestic product or your GDP starts to be equaled by your debt outstanding. In other words, when, when you have GDP and, and, and going larger as a percentage, I mean, debt going larger as a percentage of GDP, you begin to have the conditions for economic stagnation. The best example is today is Japan. So they've had over 20 years of economic stagnation. Their GDP, uh, actually their debt is about 200 and some percent of their GDP, meaning they owe twice as much as they make in a given year. Now, of course, they don't pay it all back in a year, so they're not bankrupt. But the burden on their society to keep funding all that debt 
is causing the economy not to grow, to stagnate. And that to me, that Japanese stagnation is what we're looking at. If we are forced to spend money on butter, i.e. reconstruction or social programs and reconstruction, and we refuse to reduce our addiction to guns, so we have guns and butter, we will end up in a situation where we will be, we will be, the debt will rise too fast relative to GDP. So GDP is only going up by about 2.1%, uh, uh, maybe 2.4%. Mm -hmm. And so if you grow the debt faster than two point, the deficit by more than 2.1, 2.4%, you actually end up creating a higher ratio of debt to GDP. So the math is pretty simple, actually. What we want to do is reduce the level of debt to GDP, or if you're going to increase the level of debt to GDP, do it with smart social investing. In other words, build a bridge, a highway, a sewer treatment plant, something that creates value, railroad tracks, something that creates value. Otherwise, what happens is you end up paying for it in the emergency room, quote unquote. An example of that would be all the deferred maintenance on Amtrak for all these years, which was legendary, and Penn Station, they basically, they kept saying, you gotta repair the tracks, you gotta repair them. They had three derailments, which forced them to, do, to completely move all those passengers for the entire summer out of New York onto different places. Because, and the cost of doing that was pretty steep because they had to dislocate the entire transportation system so they could do emergency repairs for three months four months. In fact, in one sense, it's good they got getting it behind them, but that delayed fix, if you will, is cr created a bigger expense. Just like if you don't take care of your health every day and you end up in the emergency room, it's a lot more expensive than taking your vitamins and doing your exercise. Same thing's true for an economy. Yeah. You want, you want to be preventative. You don't want to be emergency. And we're looking at one emergency room expenditure after another. That's what Harvey is. It's an emergency room. That's what Irma is. That's what uh, Marie is. That's what Nate is. That's what the Napa fire is. All these things are emergency rooms. And, and after a point, you, you can't keep doing that and keep your addiction to buying all those guns and still be okay. Now, I, I'm, I'm seriously concerned that this administration would be willing to try to distract the American public from these problems with the number one way that Basically, autocrats have distracted their civilizations for time immemorial, and that's wag the dog. Go create a war. So let's go create there. Create a new common enemy. Let's go there. Uh, you know, one comment I would say just about, and I think that this is an interesting way to think about it, I think that deficit hawkism is a mistake, usually, because it's not the thing that we really need to focus on, right? Right. We, we don't need to focus on our debt-to-GDP ratio, per se, as a standalone issue, because for a lot of reasons. But one is, it depends on how you adjust those, <laughs> whether that it's good or bad for the overall economy. Growing the economy in a smart way, uh, investing for medium long term and really growing based on, you know, uh, business activity that resounds to the middle and lower class, that's good. And that will readjust the debt to GDP ratio because there's so much potential growth there, you know, depending on the industry and the path forward. I think that people make a mistake in saying, we got to cut our spending in order to balance this GDP to uh, debt to GDP ratio. You know, the the point you're making is a really good one. We don't want to be having to spend money in emergency situations. And just like healthcare, it's much more expensive at that point. We want to do preventative maintenance. We want to do we want to do what you do when you work out in the morning or when you eat well. Right. We want to be investing in ourselves and in our longevity and keeping total costs down. Uh, is that an apt metaphor for you? 
Well, uh, and, and yes and no. Let me explain why I agree and, and where I would take a difference. See, what I think looking at the, the ratio of GDP to debt does is it gets you to ask the question, are we spending our money wisely? If you ask that question and you conclude, no, we're not, then you want to change how you're spending your money. If you get the answer, yeah, we're spending it wisely, then, then the ratio is not what should bother you because then you will be growing the economy ultimately and the debt will get paid back. As you have heard me say often, <clears throat> people don't realize this, but the biggest percentage of debt to GDP in the history of the United States was in, uh, occurred uh, after World War II, 1946. But it wasn't a problem because the economy boomed so much for the next 20 years, it became irrelevant. The, the, virtue, the size of the debt just kept dropping as a percentage of GDP because GDP grew so fast. So when you're growing the economy at 4%, which I think is where we should be at, 4 to 5%, you, 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 can, you can tolerate a whole lot more debt because your GDP is growing that much faster. Conversely, if you have a GDP of 2%, you got to be careful of how much more debt you can take on. Now, let me give you a specific example. The country of Greece. So the country of Greece shot its uh, debt to GDP ratio completely out of whack because the European community gave them all kinds of money, didn't ask them how they spent it. So Greece went on a 15-year party, 10 to 15-year party. They had the best party in Europe. And they had nothing to show for it when the party was over but a hangover. So they had racked up all the debt, but they didn't build the assets that would pay the debt off. Mm -hmm. Therein lies the rub. Right. So what I always say to people is none of these things are sacred cows. You know, um, If I look at uh, debt, debt ratios to GDP and you look at something else, yes, it should never be an automatic knee-jerk thing. But it should get you to ask the question, are we spending the money wisely? Yeah. Let me give you an example that everybody can, can, can relate to. If you go out and buy a house... You take on debt called a mortgage. If you've correctly calculated the percentage of what your mortgage is going to cost you in terms of your income, and many lenders say it shouldn't be more than 25%, 30 is a max. If it's within that range, then owning your own house, if you assume the value of houses will grow over time for a lot of basic economic reasons, then it's a good thing to take on that debt because you're actually creating more wealth because every year you own it, your equity in that home goes up. And hopefully it goes up more than it goes um, than it goes up in terms of the, the the cost of the debt itself, servicing the debt. Now, to me, that's a really important point, right? It's like I like investing, even if it's leveraged with debt. What I don't want to do is to go out and take on a bunch of debt and have a party. That's the Greek and the Greek example. Got it. Yeah, we're we're at a. Uh, I think it's 106 percent of GDP right now, 2016. Uh, 106% of debt to GDP. So I think, you know, we're far away from Japan, but yes, we don't want to waste it on stupid things like the military industrial complex. Um, if, if you're By the way, that, what, what year yeah. was that? That 116, what year was that? 2016. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think I, I read that we, we now are creeping up to 120 for what it's worth, but go ahead. Uh, I'll have to check on that. Um, In 2017. Interesting, okay. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's look at uh, yeah okay that's that's a new number for me you know one thing we didn't talk about yet Ronaldo is the is the recent jobs report let's let's back into that with our conversation kind of about where we are in terms of politics I think that's kind of the heart of the show okay and we you know we we don't want to cut that short and we also want to make sure we leave time for our conclusions okay um, so but I want to stick in a commercial here okay. I'm hoping that everybody listening has already signed up for the free service called Optimist Daily. Uh, it's a great service. If you'd have taken it today, uh, you would have seen all kinds of neat stories that would, would warm the cockles of your heart. 
Uh, for example, you would have seen that uh, we've we've got um, what uh, um, a, a solar high flying balloon that's going to try and help Puerto Rico reconnect some of its communications. Uh, you would you would hear about all uh, how, how much electric cars are going up in sales in Norway last month. You would see all kinds of really interesting uh, ways for CO2 to be reused as either a fluffy pillow or for concrete. So there's a lot of fun articles in here that will give you a smile. It only takes a minute to read the email we send you. And if you're interested in any of the stories, it takes another minute or two to read those stories. It's free. It's convenient. It's going to help you stay optimistic in the face of these pessimistic conversations that we're having with each other because things are not going rosy right now. And we want to remember that they can that there are potentially more solutions than there are problems if we're willing to go create them. So I just want to urge everybody, get a hold of the Optimist Daily. And, and Matt, what's, what's the best way for them to sign up for that? So just go to optimistdaily.com. And right there on the homepage, you can sign up. Uh, if you scroll down a little bit, there's a sign up bar. Good. Okay. So please do, folks. You'll love it. And once you get it, start sending articles from there to your friends. It'll cheer them up. And, you know, tell your friends, to give us their name, and we'll send them a free subscription offer also. We'd like to uh, get everybody reading this if possible. Okay. On, on that note, Ronaldo, there's a quote that I, that's been bouncing around for a while now, but it's the, the, the quote is, what if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? In other words... What if this is the darkness before the light of birth and the rebirth of society, not necessarily the darkness of our last breaths? And that's by a woman named Valerie Carr. And uh, I just recommend thinking in that direction when you read The Optimist. Well, I, I think that's true. And, 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 you know, I would add another thought to that, which I often point out that birth is very messy and frankly, quite painful both to the mother, and it's not exactly a, a, a slip and slide for the infant coming through that narrow birth canal. So there's a, it's a lot of pain, a lot of messy, and it's, and it, it's but when it's over, uh, everybody rejoices. And I think that's where we can choose to create. Remember, I believe we can choose whatever outcome we want, but I do believe failing to choose the positive outcome actually defaults to a system that you will not want to live in. Yeah. So it's not like you can just go to sleep and go, oh, well, it's all going to be fine. I'm Pollyanna and everything will be fine. Somebody will forget this out in the morning. It, it didn't like that, folks. It's it, And I, I, know, I don't know who it was that said, we are the people we've been waiting for. I think it was um, Nelson Mandela, actually. I'm not sure of that. Um, but that's what it is. We are we are the people we've been waiting for. And we have to start thinking optimistically. And then we got to start putting optimistic solutions out, which is why on this show, I try to talk about ways to understand the data so you will know how to react to it. Uh, and to your point that you asked me a minute ago, what do I think of the jobs report? I think the jobs report, most people have correctly said, was unduly negative due to the uh, so-called natural calamities. But when you have a calamity every 10 days, the word natural doesn't seem to fit anymore. It seems like they're man-made man calamities that we are accelerating. So what we have to do is we have to be willing to quit creating so many calamities. If we do that, um, the jobs will bounce back. If we don't do that, it will make it harder for jobs to bounce back. You know, it's hard for people to show up for work in Puerto Rico when they can't get gas for their cars and no electricity for their homes. It's hard for people, the tourists, to get down to Galveston when Houston's still a pretty big mess. It's hard for people <clears throat> to, 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 to want to go to the Caribbean when St. Thomas and St. Croix are basically in St. Martin or gone. So um, when you think of all the destabilization that has happened, so there are people who work on cruise ships where passengers who have been booking 
for a year or more to go to the Caribbean are going, oops, where are we going to go now? Now, will they get redirected? Yes, they'll go to Aruba, they'll go to the Southern Caribbean, they'll figure out something to do. But what it does is it depresses overall enthusiasm for spending, and therefore the jobs fall at that moment in time while people are rebuilding. Once they start to rebuild, then the jobs start to go back up. The question is, how are we spending our money to rebuild? How are we stimulating the economy so that that rebuilding creates positive job growth numbers. I think that there's been enough catastrophes in a row right now. <clears throat> I don't think it's a one-off thing that we've had some depression in the job numbers. I think that we are looking at a difficult period of time for job growth to occur. And I think we're looking at a difficult time for um, the economy to go much faster than it's currently going, despite what most economists are hoping for. So let's talk about that in specific terms or not that we're talking about a real unprecedented, unprecedented time right now in politics. Uh, you, you talked already about the infighting within the Republican ranks. Um, what do you think that? What are the implications here for the economy, and how how do we see them in terms of real numbers and and our predictions from the rest of the this past year of uh, of a stock market crash sometime around now? Well, let's start with oil, because everybody has been saying for the last I don't know, four weeks, oil is going to go back up. Oil is going to go back up. And the reasons they're saying that is because Turkey's threatened to cut off the supply of the Kurds pipeline that feeds the Kurds oil out into uh, to ships to go through Turkey. Um, Turkey hasn't done that yet. If they did do that, it would cause a disruption in global oil flows. And it would add a couple of bucks at least, maybe two to four bucks per barrel to the price of oil. However, you know, as I sit here today, oil is still below $50 a barrel. West Texas Intermediate was at $49 and change yesterday. So... <clears throat> What's going to cause it to go up? Well, there was an article that appeared a week ago that the amount of fracking is not growing as fast as it once did. And what people are beginning to realize is maybe technology alone can't allow for unlimited fracking. So to give you some numbers, uh, fracking's up about 6% right now. That's not a huge boom. And so people are beginning to say, you know, not, not all fracking everywhere will make oil cheap enough that we can sell it for $49 a barrel and make a profit. So watch for that. In the meantime, when you see countries like Japan, like China, for example, that now have way more photovoltaic installed than the US, when you see that they're putting in the equivalent of, um, you know, 100 square yards of photovoltaic an hour in China, you can see where in the, in the US, for many reasons, despite the president's desire to bring coal back, coal's not coming back. And so what's going to happen is you're going to see more photovoltaic, more wind. We've had the wonderful experience here at the Academy recently, as you know. Uh, the peaker plant in the fossil fuel peaker plant in Elwood has been permanently stopped by the Public Utilities Commission. Thank goodness, because it was going to it would blast right into a grammar school, causing all kinds of health risks for children. But we also just received on Friday a preliminary decision from the California Energy Commission shutting down a 262 megawatt, it's a big plant, fossil fuel plant scheduled for Oxnard because the Energy Commission correctly agreed with the position we've been fighting with and taking for three or four years, which is that there's enough photovoltaic combined with storage that we don't need that plant. So I see a lot of things happening to reduce the demand for fossil fuels. And I see that happening almost as fast as the pressure on the producers to reduce the volume of pumping. So it's not, it's not working to get the price of oil back up to $65 a barrel, which is what they want. Now, the Saudis and the uh, Russians just last week agreed to continue 
the reduction in pumping that the two of them engineered. You know, uh, Russia is not a member of OPEC, Saudi leads OPEC. So that they've decided to extend their pumping reduction means that the price of oil probably won't fall any further, at least for the time being. But it also apparently isn't going to go much higher because they've had that reduction in place for many, many months. Uh, so that's oil. Uh, gold, as you know, from those of you who've been listening to this show, because I told people to get about 10% of gold last year, and then I upped it to 15% earlier this year. Uh, I saw Ray Dalio. He's recommending some gold for portfolio. I think gold, uh, which is for everybody who's been listening to the show and, and taking our advice and invested in it, gold's gone up quite nicely. Uh, I think gold will continue to go up uh, because I believe there's so much uncertainty and instability. And God forbid there's a Korean incident, but if there is, that's going to really spike gold. And if there isn't, and we get trapped in this guns and butter scenario that I'm talking about, then inflation will kick in, and that too will probably drive the price of gold up. So for right now, I see gold as safe. I don't see it as a huge upside. I don't see it as hardly any downside. And it's a great insurance policy against what could happen on the geopolitical front. Now let's take the stock market. I've been playing with this for quite some time, and it's been hard for me to come to the point where I, I want to push the button and say sell, but I'm there now. I think that uh, it's time to sell your stocks. And the reason is because I don't think the amount of upside left in the S&P 500 is enough to justify the risk. Now, if you can take a 20 to 30% reduction in your stock portfolio and hang on to it for years in the belief that the stock market will come back eventually, great, do it. If you can't take that kind of a hit to your 401k, to your stocks, whatever, um, your savings, then you probably ought to sell right now because the risk of the S&P 500 coming down is now much greater than the opportunity that it'll go up. And if you believe, as I've come to believe, that the tax, corporate tax deduction is not going to happen, once the world knows that, um, you'll see a correction in the market. All right. Well, that's a pretty... Uh... Pretty strong recommendation there, Ronaldo. So you're you're you know the the can you give some people some mechanisms for how they can actually do that if they were going to execute that strategy? Well, it depends on how they hold their money now, Matt. So if they hold money through a broker, any broker, Charles Schwab, whoever, uh, can move you into what's called a money market fund. Money market fund means it's a savings account where you get almost no interest, but you don't have any capital risk. Let's say um, I'm wrong. And in three months, um, the economy takes a tremendous upturn and we get smart fiscal leadership in Washington and we get hmm. and the threat of war in Korea is off the table. Uh, and, and three months from now, you want to come back in the market. Great. What did you lose? Well, if you, if you sold everything you had, you put it into cash, you lost about you know, maybe 2% divided by 12, roughly one sixth of a percent per month, right? That, yeah. That's what you lost. And, and that's not a lot to lose for insurance. I mean, if you think of it as getting out of the market is your ins insurance, right? Well, at that point, then you, 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 it, it's worth paying, you know, 1.6 cents percent to get out of the market and be safe. It's just an insurance policy. I often like to say, you know, people buy insurance all the time and don't think about it because they want to be protected from the risk. Getting out of the market now is insurance. When... It, if the market does take a 20 or 30 percent dip and you buy back in, won't you be a happy camper? And if it doesn't and all those happy days and everything is golden and roses and you go back in the market in three months, what did you lose? You, you know, you, again, if, if, if you if you had a two percent uh, uh, 
yield, let's say, I'll, I'll say 5%. Let's say you're going to make 5% of the market in a year. Okay. So that's 0.4% per month. And if you say it's going to be like three months, you're going to give up 1.24%. That's the insurance policy cost. And that's if you believe you're going to go up 5% in the market. Lots of people don't do that. Yeah. And what I'm saying is I don't think the market's going to go up 5% more. Maybe it will, but I don't think it's going to go 20% up. So is, is the insurance you'd pay worth 1.24% for three months? I think so. Well, that's, that's a pretty strong advice there for the end of the show, Ronaldo. Thank you. And, and I think that that's a good way to leave it. Uh, is there anything else you want to add before we close? No, I just want people to know I've already called the people who, who helped me move my money around. And I've told them we're getting out of the market. It's, it's now the time. And I'll be looking for other things I can do with it besides be in the market. But um, And I'd like to talk about some of those on other shows. But okay. what can you do with your money if it's not in the stock market? But for right now, I don't think it's safe to be in the stock market. Gold is safe. Uh, I don't think the stock market is. All right. With that, keep listening. Uh, we'll update you when it is safe. And we'll continue to bring you our analysis uh, in the moment. And if you uh, want to check in in between shows, you can check in with the Academy at worldbusiness.org. Uh, also, please do subscribe to the Optimist Daily at optimistdaily.com. And with that, Ronaldo, let's uh, and, sign off next and month. Yeah. One last question. And when, when I tweet, how do they find that? Because if, if something serious happens in between, I will tweet about it. If you want to find Ronaldo's Twitter, look for at Ronaldo Brutico on Twitter. Uh, you can also find him through the World Business Academy. If you search for World Business Academy on Twitter, those accounts should be linked. Uh, and do, uh, do follow Ronaldo and the Academy uh, so you can stay up to date with us. Great. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, everyone. Take care, Ronaldo. Thank you.